Book Ten, Chapter Six of *The Wings of the Dove*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jana in Washington D.C. *The Wings of the Dove* by Henry James. Book Ten, Chapter Six. It was after he had, in fact, two months later heard from New York that she paid him a visit one morning at his own quarters coming not as she had come in Venice, under his extreme solicitation, but as a need recognized in the first instance by herself, even though also as the prompt result of a missive delivered to her. This had consisted of a note from Densher accompanying a letter, just to hand, addressed him by an eminent American legal firm, a firm of whose high character he had become conscious while in New York as of a thing in the air itself, and whose head and front, the principal executor of Milly Peel's copious will, had been duly identified at Lancaster Gate as the gentleman hurrying out, by the straight southern course, before the girl's death to support of Mrs. Stringham. Densher's act on receipt of the document in question, an act as to which and to the bearings of which his resolve had had time to mature, constituted in strictness, singularly enough, the first reference to Milly, or to what Milly might or might not have done, that had passed between our pair, since they had stood together watching the destruction in the little vulgar grate at Chelsea of the undisclosed work of her hand. They had at the time, and in due deference now, on his part, to Kate's mention of her responsibility for his call, immediately separated, and when they met again the subject was made present to them, at all events till some flare of the light, only by the intensity by which it mutely expressed its absence. They were not, moreover, in these weeks to meet often, in spite of the fact that this had, during January and a part of February, actually become for them a comparatively easy matter. Kate's stay at Mrs. Condreff's prolonged itself under allowances from her aunt, which would have been a mystery to Densher, had he not been admitted, at Lancaster Gate, really in spite of himself, to the esoteric view of them. It's her idea, Mrs. Lauder had there said to him, as if she really despised the ideas, which she didn't, and I've taken up with my own, which is to give with her her head till she has had enough of it. She has had enough of it, she had that soon enough, but as she's as proud as the deuce she'll come back when she has found some reason, having nothing in common with her disgust, of which she can make a show. She calls it her holiday, which she's spending in her own way, the holiday to which, once a year or so, as she says, the very maids in this scullery have a right. So we're taking it on that basis, but we shall not soon, I think, take another of the same sort. Besides, she's quite decent. She comes often, whenever I make her a sign, and she has been good on the whole this year or two, so that to be decent myself, I don't complain. She has really been, poor dear, very much what one hoped. Though I needn't, you know, Aunt Maud wound up, tell you, after all, you clever creature, what that was. It had been partly in truth to keep down the opportunity for this, that Densher's appearances under the good lady's roof, markedly after Christmas, interspaced themselves. The phase of the, his situation that on his return from Venice had made them for a short time almost frequent was at present quite obscured, and with it the impulse that had then acted. Another phase had taken its place, which he would have been painfully at a loss as yet to name or otherwise set on its feet, but of which the steadily rising tide led Mrs. Lowder, for his desire, quite high and dry. 
There had been a moment when it seemed possible that Mrs. Stringham, returning to America under convoy, would pause in London on her way, and be housed with her old friend, in which case he was prepared for some apparent zeal of attendance. But this danger passed. He had felt it a danger, for the person in the world whom he had just now have most valued, seeing on his own terms, sailed away westward from Genoa. He thereby only wrote to her, having broken in his respect after Milly's death, the silence as to the sense of which, before that event, their agreement had been so deep. She had answered him from Venice twice, and had had time to answer him twice again from New York. The last letter of her four had come by the same post as the document he sent on to Kate, but he hadn't gone into the question of also enclosing that. His correspondence with Milly's companion was somehow already presenting itself to him as a feature, as a factor, he would have said in the newspaper, of the time, whatever it might be, long or short, in store for him. But one of his acutest current thoughts was apt to be devoted to his not having yet mentioned it to Kate. She had put him no question, no, don't you ever hear, so that he hadn't been brought to the point. This he described to himself as a mercy, for he liked his secret. It was as a secret that, in the same personal privacy, he described his transatlantic commerce, scarce even wincing while he recognized it as the one connection in which he wasn't strayed. He had, in fact, for this connection a vivid mental image. He saw it as a small emergent rock in the waste of waters, the bottomless gray expanse of straightness. The fact that he had on several occasions taken with Kate an out-of-the-day walk that was each time to define itself as more remarkable for what they didn't say than for what they did, this fact failed somehow to mitigate for him a strange consciousness of exposure. There was something deep within him that he had absolutely shown to no one, to the companion of these walks in particular not a bit more than he could help. But he was none the less haunted, under its shadow, with a dire apprehension of publicity. It was as if he had invoked that ugliness in some stupid good faith, and it was queer enough that on this emergent rock, clinging to it and to Susan Shepherd, he should figure himself as hidden from view. That represented no doubt his belief in her power, or in her delicate disposition to protect him. Only Kate at all events knew what Kate did know, and she was also the last person interested to tell it, in spite of which it was as if his act, so deeply associated with her and never to be recalled nor recovered, was abroad on the winds of the world. His honesty, as he viewed it with Kate, was the very element of that menace. To the degree that he saw at moments, as to their final impulse or their final remedy, the need to bury in the dark blindness of each other's arms, the knowledge of each other that they couldn't undo. Save indeed that the sense in which it was in these days a question of arms was limited, this might have been the intimate expedient to which they were actually resorting. It had its value, in conditions that made everything count, that thrice over in Battersea Park, where Mrs. Lowder now never drove, he had adopted the usual means, in sequestered alleys, of holding her close to his side. She could make absences on her present footing, without having too inordinately to account for them at home which was exactly what gave them for the first time an appreciable margin. He supposed she could always say in Chelsea, though he didn't press it, that she had been across the town in decency for a look at her aunt, whereas there had always been reasons at Lancaster Gate for her not being able to plead the look at her other relatives. 
It was therefore between them a freedom of a purity as yet untasted, which for that matter also they made in various ways no little show of cherishing as such. They made the show indeed in every way, but the way of a large use, and in consequence that they almost equally gave time to helping each other to regard as natural. He put it to his companion that the kind of favor he now enjoyed at Lasker Gate, the wonderful warmth of his reception there, cut in a manner the ground from under their feet. He was too horribly trusted, they had succeeded too well. He couldn't, in short, make appointments with her without abusing Aunt Maud, and he couldn't, on the other hand, haunt that lady without trying his hands. Kate saw what he meant just as he saw what she did, when she admitted that she was herself, to degrees scarce less embarrassing, in the enjoyment of Aunt Maud's confidence. It was special at present, she was handsomely used. She confessed accordingly to a scruple about misapplying her license. Mrs. Lowder then finally had found, and all unconsciously now, the way to baffle them. It wasn't, however, that they didn't meet a little, none the less, in a southern quarter, to point for their common benefit the moral of their defeat. They crossed the river. They wandered the neighborhood, sordid and safe. The winter was mild, so that, mounting to the top of trams, they could rumble together to Clapham or to Greenwich. If, at the same time, their minutes had never been so counted, it struck Densher that by a singular law, their tone, he scarce knew what to call it, had never been so bland. Not to talk of what they might have talked of drove them to other ground. It was as if they used to perverse insistence to make up for what they ignored. They concealed their pursuit of the irrelevant by the charm of their manner. They took precautions for the courtesy they had formerly left to come off of itself. Often, when he had quitted her, he stopped short, walking off with the after-sense of their change. He would have described their change, had he so far faced it as to describe it, by their being so damned civil. That had even, with the intimate, the familiar at the point to which they had brought them, a touch almost of the drawl. What danger had there ever been of their becoming rude, after each had long since made the other so tremendously tender? Such were the things he asked himself when he wondered what in particular he most feared. Yet all the while, too, the tension had its charm, such being the interest of a creature who could bring one back to her by such different roads. It was her talent for life again, which found in her a difference for the differing time. She didn't give their tradition up, she but made of it something new. Frankly, moreover, she had never been more agreeable, nor in any way, to put it prosaically, better company. He felt almost as if he were knowing her on that defined basis, which he even hesitated whether to measure as reduced or as extended. As if at all events he were admiring her as she was probably admired by people she met out. He hadn't in fine reckoned that she would still have something fresh for him, yet this was what she had, that on the top of a tram in the borough he felt as if he were next her at dinner. What a person she would be if they had been rich, with what a genius for the so-called great life, what a presence for the so-called great house, what a grace for the so-called great positions. He might regret at once, while he was about it, that they weren't princes or billionaires. She had treated him on their Christmas to a softened that had struck him at the time as of the quality of fine velvet, meant to fold thick, but stretched a little thin. At present, however, she gave him the impression of a contact multitudinous, as only the superficial can be. 
She had throughout never a word for what went on at home. She came out of that and she returned to it, but her nearest reference was the look with which each time she bade him good-bye. The look was her repeated prohibition. It's what I have to see and to know, so don't touch it. That but wakes up the old evil, which I keep still, in my way, by sitting on it. Go now, leave me alone, to sit by it again. The way to pity me, if that's what you want, is to believe in me. If we could really do anything, it would be another matter. He watched her, when she went her way, with the vision of what she thus a little stiffly carried. It was confused and obscure, but how, with her head high, it made her hold herself. He really in his own person might at these moments have been swaying a little aloft as one of the objects in her poised basket. It was doubtless thanks to some such consciousness as this that he felt the lapse of the weeks, before the day of Kate's mounting of his stair, almost swingingly rapid. They contained for him the contradiction that whereas periods of waiting are supposed in general to keep the time slow, it was the wait, actually, that made the pace trouble him. The secret of that anomaly, to be plain, was that he was aware of how, while days melted, something rare went with them. This something was only a thought, but a thought precisely of such freshness and such delicacy as made the precious of whatever sort most subject to the hunger of time. The thought was all his own, and his intimate companion was the last person he might have shared it with. He kept it back like a favored pang left it behind him, so to say, when he went out, and came home again the sooner for the certainty of finding it there. Then he took it out of its sacred corner and its soft wrappings. He undid them one by one, handling them, handling it, as a father, baffled and tender, might handle a maimed child. But so it was before him, in his dread, of who else might see it. Then he took to himself at such hours, in other words, that he should never, never know what had been in Milly's letter. The attention announced in it he should but too probably know, only that would have been, but for the depths of his spirit, the least part of it. The part of it missed, forever, was the turn she would have given her act. This turn had possibilities that, somehow, by wondering about them, his imagination had extraordinarily filled out and refined. It had made of them a revelation the loss of which was like the sight of a priceless pearl cast before his eyes, his pledge given not to save it into the fathomless sea, or rather even it was like the sacrifice of something sentient and throbbing, something that, for the spiritual ear, might have been audible as a faint far wail. This was the sound he cherished when alone in the stillness of his rooms. He sought and guarded the stillness, so that it might prevail there till the inevitable sounds of life, once more, comparatively coarse and harsh, should smother and deaden it. Doubtless by the same process with which they would officiously heal the ache in his soul that was somehow one with it. It moreover deepened the sacred hush that he couldn't complain. He had given poor Cade her freedom. The great and obvious thing, as soon as she stood there on the occasion we have already named, was that she was now in high possession of it. This would have marked immediately the difference, had there been nothing else to do it, between their actual terms and their other terms, the character of their last encounter in Venice. That had been his idea, whereas her present step was her own. The few marks they had in common were, from the first moment, to his conscious vision, almost pathetically plain. She was as grave now as before. 
She looked around her to hide it, as before. She pretended, as before, in an air in which her words at the moment itself fell flat, to an interest in the place and a curiosity about his things. There was a recall in the way in which, after she had failed a little to push up her veil symmetrically, and he had said she had better take it off altogether, she had acceded to his suggestion before the glass. It was just these things that were vain, and what was real was that his fancy figured her after the first few minutes as literally now providing the element of reassurance which had previously been his care. It was she, supremely, who had the presence of mind. She made, indeed, for that matter, very prompt use of it. You see, I've not hesitated this time to break her seal. She had laid on the table from the moment of her coming in the long envelope, substantially filled, which he had sent her enclosed in another of still ampler make. He had, however, not looked at it, his belief being that he wished never again to do so, besides which it had happened to rest with its addressed side up. So he saw nothing, and it was only into her eyes that her remark made him look, declining any approach to the object indicated. It's not my seal, my dear, and my intention, which my note tried to express, was all to treat it to you as not mine. Do you mean that it's to that extent mine, then? Well, let us call it, if we like, theirs, that of the good people in New York, the authors of our communication. If the seal is broken, well and good. But we might, you know, he presently added, have sent it back to them intact and inviolate, only accompanied, he smiled, with his heart in his mouth, by an absolutely kind letter. Kate took it with the mere brave blink with which a patient of courage signifies to the exploring medical hand that the tender place is touched. He saw on the spot that she was prepared, and with this signal sign that she was too intelligent not to be, come to afflict her possibilities. She was, merely to put it at that, intelligent enough for anything. Is it what you're proposing we should do? Ah, it's too late to do it. Well, ideally. Now, with that sign that we know. But you don't know, she said very gently. I refer, he went on without noticing it, to what would have been the handsome way. It's being dispatched again with no cognizance taken but one's assurance of the highest consideration, and the proof of this in the state of the envelope. That would have been really satisfying. She thought an instant. The state of the envelope proving refusal, you mean, not to be based on the insufficiency of the sum? Densher smiled again as for the play, however whimsical, of her humor. Well, yes, something of that sort. So that if cognizance had been taken, so far as I'm concerned, it spoils the beauty? It makes the difference that I'm disappointed in the hope, which I confess I entertained, that you'd bring the thing back to me as you had received it. You didn't express that hope in your letter. I didn't want to. I wanted to leave to yourself. I wanted, oh yes, if that's what you wish to ask me, to see what you'd do. You wanted to measure the possibilities of my departure from delicacy? He continued steady now, a kind of ease from the presence, as in the air, of something he couldn't yet have named, had come to him. Well, I wanted, in so good a case, to test you. She was struck. It showed in her face by her expression. It is a good case. I doubt whether a better, she said with her eyes on him, has ever been known. The better the case, then the better the test. How do you know, she asked in reply to this, what I'm capable of? I don't, my dear. Only with the seal unbroken I should have known sooner. I see. She took it in. 
but I myself shouldn't have known at all, and you wouldn't have known either what I do know. Let me tell you at once, he returned, that if you've been moved to correct my ignorance, I very particularly request you not to. She just hesitated. Are you afraid of the effect of the corrections? Can you only do it by doing it blindly? He winked a moment. What is it that you speak of my doing? Why, the only thing in the world that I take you as thinking of, not accepting what she has done. Isn't there some regular name in such cases, not taking up the bequest? There's something you forget in it, he said after a moment, my asking you to join with me in doing so. Her wonder but made her softer, yet at the same time didn't make her less firm. How can I join in a matter with which I have nothing to do? How? By a single word. And what word? Your consent to my giving up. My consent has no meaning when I can't prevent you. You can perfectly prevent me. Understand that well, he said. She seemed to face a threat in it. You mean, you won't give up if I don't consent? Yes, I do nothing. That, as I understand, is accepting. Densher paused. I do nothing formal. You won't, I suppose you mean, touch the money. I won't touch the money. It had a sound, though he had been coming to it, that made for gravity. Who then in such an event will? Anyone who wants or who can. Again, a little, she said nothing. She might say too much. But by the time she spoke, he had covered ground. How can I touch it but through you? You can't. Any more, he added, than I can renounce it except through you. Oh, ever so much less. There's nothing she explained in my power. I'm in your power, Merton Densher said. In what way? In the way I show, and the way I've always shown. When have I shown, he asked, as with a sudden cold impatience, anything else? You surely must feel, so that you needn't wish to appear to spare me in it, how you have me. It's very good of you, my dear, she nervously laughed, to put me so thoroughly up to it. I put you up to nothing. I didn't even put you up to the chance that, as I said a few minutes ago, I saw for you in forwarding that thing. Your liberty is therefore in every way complete. It had come to the point, really, that they showed each other pale faces and that all the unspoken between them looked out of their eyes in a dim terror of their future conflict. Something even rose between them, in one of their short silences, something that was like an appeal from each to the other not to be too true. Their necessity was somehow before them, but which of them must meet it first? Thank you, Kate said for his word about her freedom, but taking for a minute no further action on it. It was blessed at least that all ironies failed them, and during another slow moment their very sense of it cleared the air. There was an effect of this in the way he soon went on. You must intensely feel that it's the thing for which we work together. She took up the remark, however, no more than if it were commonplace. She was already again occupied with a point of her own. Is it absolutely true, for if it is, you know, it's tremendously interesting, that you haven't so much as a curiosity about what she has done for you? Would you like, he asked, my formal oath on it? No, but I don't understand. It seems to me in your place. Ah, he couldn't help breaking in. What do you know of my place? Pardon me, he once added. My preference is the one I express. She had in an instant, nevertheless, a curious thought. But won't the facts be published? Published, he winced. I mean, won't you see them in the papers? Ah, oh, never. I shall know how to escape that. It seemed to settle the subject, but she had the next minute another insistence. 
Your desire is to escape everything? Everything. Do you need no more definite sense of what it is you ask me to help you to renounce? My sense is sufficient without being definite. I'm willing to believe that the amount of money is not small. Ah, there you are, she exclaimed. If she was to leave me a remembrance, he quietly pursued, he would inevitably not be meagre. Kate waited as for how to say it. It's worthy of her. It's what she was herself, if you remember what we once said that was. He hesitated, as if there had been any many things. But he remembered one of them. Stupendous? Stupendous. A faint smile for it, even so small, had flickered in her face, but had vanished before the omen of tears, a little less uncertain, had shown themselves in his own. His eyes filled, but that made her continue. She continued gently. I think that what it really is must be that you're afraid. I mean, she explained, that you're afraid of all the truth. If you're in love with her without it, what indeed can you be more? And you're afraid, it's wonderful, to be in love with her. I never was in love with her, said Densher. She took it, but after a little she met it. I believe that now, for the time she lived. I believe it at least for the time you were there. But your change came, as it might well, the day you last saw her. She died for you, then, that you might understand her. From that hour you did. With which Kate slowly rose. And I do now. She did it for us. Densher rose to face her, and she went on with her thought. I used to call her, in my stupidity, for want of anything better, a dove. Well, she stretched out her wings, and it was to that they reached. They cover us. They cover us, Densher said. That's what I give you, Kate gravely wound up. That's what I've done for you. His look at her had a slow strangeness that had dried on the moment his tears. Do I understand, then, that I do consent? She gravely shook her head. No, for I see. You'll marry me without the money. You won't marry me with it. If I don't consent, you don't. You lose me? He showed, though naming it frankly, a sort of awe of her high grasp. Well, you lose nothing else. I make over to you every penny. Prompt was his own clearness, but she had no smile this time to spare. Precisely, so that I must choose. You must choose. Strange it was for him, then, that she stood in his own rooms doing it, while with an intensity now beyond any that had ever made his breath come slow, he waited for her to act. There's but one thing that can save you from my choice. From your choice of my surrender to you? Yes, and she gave a nod at the long envelope on the table. Your surrender of that. What is it, then? Your word of honor, that you're not in love with her memory. Oh, her memory. Ah, she made a high gesture. Don't speak of it as if you couldn't be. I could in your place, and you're one for whom it will do. Her memory's your love. You want no other. He heard her out of stillness, watching her face but not moving. Then he only said, I'll marry you, mind you, in an hour. As we were? As we were. But she turned to the door, and her head shake was now the end. We shall never be again as we were. End of Book 10, Chapter 6 Recording by Jeanne in Washington, D.C. End of The Wings of the Dove by Henry James